We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and Peter is here as well and both of us will be hosting the show this evening. Hi. So welcome listeners. This is a special broadcast today and it's in regards to Indigenous femicide. Before I go on and introduce our special guest today, I just wanted to say to listeners that we are doing our subscriber drive show today as um, the Doing Time show were not able to attend last Monday due to unforeseen circumstances. So you'll be hearing throughout the show subscriber announcements and you'll also um, be hearing me promote um, not just 3CR but also the Doing Time show as well. Professor Bronwyn Carlson will be joining us on the show as a special guest and Indigenous contributor to discuss um, to discuss a new case, case study funded and exploring the pertinent and misunderstood issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Australia and internationally as part of the Deathscapes Project. Professor Bronwyn Carlson is the head of the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Bronwyn is an Aboriginal scholar who was born on and lives on Darrell country in Wollongong. She has worked in both the Aboriginal community controlled health sector and higher education. For many years, the Doing Time show has focused much of its media squarely on building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Specifically, we will be interviewing on the topic of Indigenous femicide, which is a term used in the case study to underline that the incidence of Indigenous women's deaths in these disparate places is not accidental or random, but a systematic outcome of the logic of settler colonialism. I've actually obtained permission from one of um, the researchers, Savendi, to read large chunks of the case study. And we're going to be speaking with Bronwyn in detail um, about this and looking at not only the case studies, but why, what has happened, why has it happened, and looking at women that have died in custody outside the prison system. So I'm just going to go into an announcement now. And, um, and hopefully we'll be getting Bronwyn on very soon. But um, also to say to listeners that Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people, um, in, out of respect for them, you will hear um, details about deceased people. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. 
And you're back with the Doing Time show. On the line, we have Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who's going to be speaking to us about the new case study regarding Indigenous femicide and about missing and murdered women. Hello, Bronwyn. Welcome to the program. Hello, and thanks for having me on. It's lovely to have you. Now, just to, just to clarify for listeners, can you just tell us what land you're from? So I was born on and raised here in Wollongong on Barrawal country. Thank you so much. So, Bronwyn, this is going to be quite an in-depth topic, so um, just bear with us here. <laughs> um, no worries. Yeah, so I, I first met, well, I didn't actually meet her personally, but I, I first came across Bronwyn when I recorded, um, on behalf of the Doing Time show, the Deathscapes Symposium. And I believe, Bronwyn, you were part of a panel, weren't you there? Yes, I was. Yeah, and that that was that was a, a a great event, wasn't it? To really promoting um, all deaths in custody, isn't it? Yeah, it was a really fantastic um, panel, which was highlighting the sort of unlawful deaths of um, Indigenous Australians, but also refugee community members. Absolutely. So to start off, I'm just going to actually ask or put forward a question that was actually put into the media release. And I'm wondering if we could just follow on from that, if you could help, help me to answer that, Bronwyn. So in light, in light of MP Linda Burney's recent call for a Senate inquiry into missing Indigenous women in Australia, how is this case study important? Look, you know, first of all, that's really great that Linda Burney um, stepped up you know, to make that call and to call for that, because that's something that's seriously being missing, really. And given the attention across the world in terms of violence against women, missing and murdering women, particularly in the Canadian context, we've seen really little action. You know, if we think about Canada, for example, over 4,000 Indigenous women uh, have, have been reported missing or murdered in a particular area of Canada. That's, that's a massive crisis, is it not? Massive. If 4,000 citizens were to be killed across Sydney, for example, there would be an absolute outcry, um, not only from you know the country, but across the world. So I think you know um, Linda Burney bringing that to the attention um, of the media, the government, etc., is absolutely um, you know really really needed. We're in um, a sort of the context in the world is we've got the hashtag Me Team. Me Too movement. We've got sort of um, national stories and international stories around violence against women. But when it comes to Indigenous women, um, there seems to be a, a real silence um, around those cases. So I think the importance of this is that it's really the first case study that looks at Indigenous femicide from a transnational perspective. Um, it's also looking at different sites outside formal custody not just custodial institutions. And, you know, one of the interesting things that this does is it connects um, state violence um, from all those places. So we're not just looking at death and custody inside a prison cell or a um, remand cell. We're looking much more broadly across all deaths um, of Indigenous people and we're looking to see how has that state-initiated violence or continual colonial patterns of thinking have impacted on the death of that person. It's very true. And and indeed, these deaths are, are really part of a, a pattern, aren't they, 
involving Indigenous women in settler societies such as Canada, Australia and the United States? Yeah, and I think if you, you look more broadly, even across the world, wherever, you know, there are Indigenous people, you'll find, um, you know, some similar silences around the deaths and violence against Indigenous women. But certainly across these, um, you know, colonised spaces like North America, including Canada um, and Australia, we see similar patterns. And those are colonial patterns and colonial thinking that we can identify those patterns in those systems and institutions, which has largely been set up not to create spaces that are helpful to or for Indigenous people, but to exclude. Tell us about that. Let's talk about exclusion. What does that mean for for Indigenous women? So, you know, this can mean, um, you know, many things. So if we just think about it, and I just finished this great project on help-seeking and help-giving, and of course I was looking across digital formats as well, but... In terms of seeking help, so if we look at all of these cases, there are some similarities. And some of those is that these particular um, women have sought help from institutions and agencies for particular things like domestic violence, where they have not been able to receive appropriate care or responses. We've seen really high levels of violence perpetrated against women before, long before their death, that has been reported. They've tried to seek help, tried to use the system. And we also see high levels of poverty, so that will be unpaid fines and the like. But what we see throughout too is Indigenous women coming into custody or coming into, um, you know, into the focus of police um, or the legal system because of things like public drunkenness or you know unpaid fines, such things that most non-Indigenous people would not be arrested for or not face a custodial sentence for. We also see responses from those who are supposed to be there to provide help and support for Indigenous people or for just people in general, and particularly women, um, particularly around domestic violence and, and those kinds of things. We see Indigenous women being turned away or not receiving appropriate care for all sorts of reasons. And some of those reasons are a little bit unbelievable. One of the women, one of the case studies that um, people can read, repeatedly went to the police um, to seek help for um, a violent situation that she was in. Um, But she was told, you know, in one case that she couldn't receive help or um, be taken into a place for refuge because she had too many kids. So this idea that Indigenous people just have, you know, loads and loads of kids and uh, incapable of taking care of them. So, you know, you've got too many kids, so care can't be given to you. That's discrimination. Absolutely it is. That would be Andrea Pickett? Yes. So that's 2009, Andrea Pickett. 39 years, North Beach, WA. I mean, this show really, Bronwyn, is is about honouring these women, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. This site, actually, you know, there's been cases where, um, you know, we try and remember, you know, the fallen people's names. You know, that's something that we do as a kind of cultural practice yes. in, um, in, you know, in Australia, really. And so these women, their deaths have gone unnoticed by the media, unnoticed by our legal system, unnoticed by the Australian public. Because if you start piecing them together and seeing those patterns, you would be outraged and you should be outraged. Absolutely. And just while we're we're actually talking about Andrea Pickett, she was she was killed in her home, wasn't she? Or yes. sorry, in her cousin's home. 
at home. And while we're at it, perhaps we need to continue this roll call 2010 Shona, Shona, I believe it is, um, Violet Tendall Carter, 26 years, and that's, and that's um, Beachborough, Perth, WA, Australia. And 2010, again in the home, wasn't it, Bromman? Amanda yep. Kay, Amanda Kay Sawney, 25 years, Androve, Queensland, Australia. I'm just trying to give listeners just a little bit of a cross-section of the some of the women that, that died in their home and as we go through the case studies. But it, it's true. The list is long. <laughs> it's very long. Like We'd be here all night, Bromman. Yes. I mean, at that Deathscapes um, launch, names were read of um, people who had been killed. Yes. Um, and those lists were long, and, you know, I was deeply moved by hearing those names out loud and understanding the absolute depth and numbers of people who have died in those circumstances. We do a lot of that on this show too. On on our show, we, we actually also commemorate um, people that have died and, and do a lot of anniversaries. In, yeah. I know, that's fantastic. It's very important, isn't it? So just to give, give a little bit of background in, in with the case study, some of the the other Indigenous contributors are also um, Dr Hannah McGlade, just so that we get, acknowledge her yes. on air, and also Tess Ellis. Is that how you pronounce her name, Bronwyn? Yes. Yep. Tess Ellis as well. And Joseph Bugliesi and, and Sylvendi are also um, the researchers as well. Absolutely. So I, I work at Macquarie with um, Joseph Pugliesi, um, who first introduced me to this site and to this project um, and then met met the others and fantastic work. I you know, can't commend um, everyone who's involved in this enough, really. Interestingly, I was reading the case study about the women that died in the river. And it's so interesting, the historical and genocidal connection to um, the massacres. You know how it says, Bronwyn, that rivers and waterways are sacred sources of life to Indigenous peoples, but many major massacres during the frontier wars took place along rivers where Aboriginal people lived. Can you talk about that and and maybe... um, draw upon some of the examples there to highlight that? Yeah, so, you know, it makes complete sense if we think about where Aboriginal people would and continue to live and be connected to. And so waterways are, of course, um, you know, one would imagine that's where you'd want to live, somewhere where there's water, but they're also, you know, quite sacred for cultural um, specific reasons. So various groups have different understandings about creation and include waterways. Um, And so people will live by... um, you know, waterways for various reasons connected to, um, you know, creation stories, um, the community's past, and um, also for actual survival and living. Um, but life does come from water and it is held quite sacred amongst Indigenous people. And that's kind of worldwide. And you'll see that it's not only in Australia no. that um, Indigenous people are killed um, in and around rivers or riverbeds. So, in the, you know, in terms of meeting places, places to be, rivers and waterways also hold some significance for Indigenous people. So you'll find that there'll be sites of gathering and, you know, long before colonisation, these are cross sites of song lines where um, other communities would come and gather and people would, um, you know, feast and celebrate and tell stories and learn lore and um, all sorts of things by the river. And yet, and yet, when the settler societies were established, 
the the Aboriginal people were massacred on in those absolutely. rivers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, that's because that's where a lot of Indigenous people were found, of course. So that's why massacre sites are where people were would be camping and living at the time. Um, so you'll you'll see that, and the idea that you can you know wash away bodies down river too and wash away evidence, etc., also holds firm. So you will find right across those colonised spaces um, lots of deaths close by water. It's interesting just to quote from the this particular um, case. Well the background to this particular case study involving the river. In Australia, as in Canada, colonists violently cleared Aboriginal bodies from what they claimed as good pastoral lands, leaving rivers Mm. of blood in their wake. Yeah. It's just, yeah, what do you think about that? These are really horrifying things. So when when you hear those things out out loud, and even when I hear them again, um, you know, you start to think about where is it that I live? I like, what is this mm. countryside that I live in? And, you know, the sad thing is about, um, you know, teaching Indigenous studies particularly is the amount of people who know very little about um, colonial history in this country, very little about Indigenous history. So this stuff is so hidden, so unknown, um, and really rejected by some mainstream media too as not existing, never happened. These things are, are fake. You know, which is just ludicrous because there's so much evidence. Oh, you don't hear this stuff on the ABC. You you might hear that, you know, that people are trying to get their land, the Marbo. And I'm not I'm not dis- yep. I'm not um, discrediting um, ABC media or the Marbo. All I'm saying is that, you know, Aboriginal women may be interviewed on the drum, and all that type of stuff. But this type of stuff isn't said properly and. What I've always deeply believed, and I'm sure Peter would agree with me, we've got Peter joining us in the studio, he's also my colleague, is that we need to name, we need to name it and we need to actually do roll calls regularly on this show and and on on any show about Indigenous. Absolutely. You know, Indigenous people um, right across the world, but particularly here in Australia too, have been calling for truth-telling. Like the truth has to be told about these situations. People have to know... The, you know, the depth and breadth of the violence against Indigenous people and how it is connected to the past, to colonialism, but it's not separate. And this idea that colonialism has ended at some point in time and Indigenous people need to get over it is just such ridiculousness because the evidence shows us the connection. There is a connection between the deaths that we see now and the deaths that we know and understand have happened in the past. We know that there is a connection and we can see the colonial pattern of thinking all across that. We can see how it works and how it functions, but more needs to be you know, taught. And so this is great that radio shows like this are doing that. People need to be named so that people understand that it's not just some Aboriginal woman that died. That's a person's name. That's their family. And I think that's one of the great things about the site is it brings forward the family. The family then have something to say about it their grief and their loss and the heartache for those families and communities at the loss of that member. And then also, the media doesn't get an opportunity to portray that person as something less than who they are. You know, it's not just some drunk person who, you know, died, not just some person who is in jail, because that already brings about ideas for people. They think, oh, well, they shouldn't have been doing this or they shouldn't have been doing that. You know, so it gives a full and complete picture of somebody's life and the kinds of things that they've had to um, overcome in their lives 
or the, the things they're trying to overcome and can't, or the discrimination and oppression that they face. Um, you know, so this site, that's one of the, the case studies in this, that's what it does. It brings forward the person as a, a whole human being, gives them some agency, but also gives their family a place to, to talk about them in their wholeness. Like, who is this person? Mm. What, what's the hole that's left behind when we're talking about how many children, how many family members? Yeah. And, you know, it also brings, like, when you look at the site and see the depth of it, and there's so much more that could go into the site, and I know that, sure. you know, case studies are still coming. But when you look at that, I, it does give me sort of horrors about, like, what world are we living in here? What's happening around us that we're not taking notice of? Yeah, it's all right. When, when, a, backpacker, when a backpacker passes away, a white backpacker, yeah. they solve that murder almost immediately, don't they? And honour that. Well, it's not, not that I'm definitely you know. given to it. No, and uh, you know, hopefully, all murders get solved in yes, domestic yes. against women. So this is nothing to say they shouldn't focus on this. And they of course focus not. On that. Mm. It is really to just highlight that you know these lives matter also, um, and the reason that they're being brought to the fore is because they are ignored. So with the river, so you've got 1999 Cheryl Anthea Braden, 21 years, Todd Riverbed yep. NT. Do you know much about her? Yeah. Uh, I don't know much about that case. Um, I wasn't involved in all of the cases. That's all right. Um, or bringing them in. But, I mean, in the river, it goes back to, you know, even in um, the 1970s and even back to the 60s in the Canadian context. So that shows some longevity of deaths in those spaces. Absolutely. And we don't need to talk about the women in detail. People can read those on the site. What's the, yeah, what's the name of the site, uh, Bronwyn? So it's Deathscapes. And, I mean, if you just Google Deathscapes Femicide, it'll yeah. bring you right to the case studies. But the Deathscapes.org um, will bring you to all of the, you know, um, all the different case studies, not only just the ones about femicide, but looking at deaths of Indigenous people more broadly. And I feel like at this point we, we need to acknowledge also the Red River stories for, for Canada as well, that the bodies of several women and girls have been found in the Red River leaving families with missing loved ones wondering how many more rest beneath the surface. And you've got Absolutely. Felicia Solomon, Audrey Desgalalis and April Carpenter are just a few of the Indigenous women and girls known yeah. to have been dumped in the Red River. Actually, yeah, name for it. what's interesting, Bronwyn, is Renell Harper could have been one of them after being violently assaulted at the edge of the Assambini yes. River. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, if things were to be more exposed, you would find many more connections. Yeah. A lot of the stuff is still not really, you know, known or it's not public or um, the connections aren't being made. But I think we will find, particularly as this grows, I think we're going to find a lot more connections even here in Australia between particular deaths in particular places. Absolutely. But mm. this particular woman was, was, was rushed to hospital and now she's an advocate on behalf of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. Yeah, I actually do some work with a few women who work in that space um, looking at, um, you know, activism in the missing and murdered women space. And I've got a special edition coming out just shortly and one of our authors has written about um, the missing and murdered women and the kinds of things that people are trying to do to to bring attention to it. I mean, yeah, why isn't it a, you know, 
National Guard brought in? Why isn't there an intervention? Why isn't there national emergency response to these kinds of things? There really needs to be, really. And oh, yeah. It's, um, although Canada is having a national inquiry, isn't it? Yeah, but it seems funny because like, often we look to Canada and think that they you know, are leading the way in a lot of these things. But there's still over 4,000 missing and murdered women that have gone unanswered for. So what I find in all of these colonial settings, there's none are doing well in this space, that much more needs to be done um, you know, to, to be answerable to um, the public about the high rates of deaths among Indigenous people. It's atrocious and right across those. So, yeah, why Canada's doing some things, um, I, still, I think it falls short. People are still going missing. And when, you know, Canadian um, women and children, young girls, are reported missing, they face the same kind of discriminatory practices um, in reporting that Indigenous people here in Australia do. You know, there's that idea that they've gone walkabout or they're drunk somewhere or they're probably out having a good time. Um, There's all these kinds of, you know, ideas get brought into it to suggest that Indigenous women, you know, have no sort of concern about their their own safety, that they're all off partying and, um, you know, being irresponsible, um, which which is really ridiculous. So when you report somebody missing and you're actually very concerned about them to have... Um, you know, a police officer say, oh, they're probably going to walk about or they're probably out on a bender or, you know, what they're like, um, making assumptions about somebody's character that they don't know based on some age-old stereotypes about Indigenous people is devastating. It's it's really... It's it's genocide in, in a way, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah, I think that's why the use of femicide um, in the in the title of this is very fitting. Yes. You know, it is really to draw attention to the gendered nature of genocide um, and, you know, the violence, the gendered violence against women, girls and, and trans women in this too, because there's often this um, neglect in that space as well. Um, trans women are often targeted um, for, you know, and... You know, high rates of violence perpetrated upon the trans community. Um, yeah, so Indigenous Femicide suits this project. It is because we can connect it to the colonial, um, you know, violence that has always been perpetrated. We have, you know, this is nothing new. We can see the same kind of patterns, um, the same kind of thinking. So it, it, it definitely is genocide. When you target a particular population, um, the idea is to either rid the place of the population or annihilate them in one way or another. It's definitely genocide. We can see that same kind of violence right from, you know, the beginning of colonialism. There's lots of sexual violence reported against Indigenous women through stories, through facts, through the writings of the colonisers themselves. Um, then we have removal, which usually entails removal of children, removal of bodies, removal of people, trafficking across borders. We can see the same kinds of patterns right across these these various um, countries. It's really interesting you should say that 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 there's a there's connection to what happened in the past to what happens now. You know that yeah. the women being murdered it, it all all goes back to what happened in 1780-odd onwards. And interestingly, I, I actually used to work in, in a youth penal um, place. Um, I won't name exactly where it is. Yep. And uh, there is it's relevant to this discussion. And there are some Aboriginal youth that I was teaching and someone made a really racist comment. And um, I said, hey, 
I said, this this is like we're back in mission times, eh? And they said, shh. The Aboriginal women was like, be quiet, be quiet. Don't, don't say that. And I was just really upset that there was just so much racism and it came out of my mouth yeah. and I don't even know where it came from. <laughs> but the the people were frightened that, that I had said yeah. that. But I'm glad I said it because it was like the mission. Yeah. I mean, they were probably frightened for any repercussions, I would imagine. I was. Um, it was actually the cook. Yeah. That, that told me not not okay. one of the prisoners, but but yeah, it was yeah. it was. But they didn't get any repercussions, and it actually worked out really well in the okay. end. So and and actually, what I said did help in the end. So sometimes you've got to take risks with these sort of things and speak and speak up. You know. Oh, totally. You know, and more people really really do need to do that. Um, speak up when and identify. I mean, racism and that kind of violence that can be perpetrated. Um, you know, with it, it's not just the responsibility of Indigenous people. Um, we are not the ones that are perpetrating those crimes against ourselves. So <laughs> it is definitely, um, you know, in the domain of others to speak up. And don't, they shouldn't want to live in a world where that happens. I mean, that's my whole point of this. You, you shouldn't want to live in a world where, you know, it's okay to murder, you know, Indigenous girls and women. Correct. That's just atrocious. But here in Australia, there is this long history, you know, and it really starts with you know, particular things like there's a real absence of stories that document Indigenous women as defenders and warriors. You know, we're often um, just depicted as submissive or slaves or objects of sexual exploitation. We can see that in the the kind of, um, you know, stereotypical names and derogatory names that are referred to Indigenous women, like as gins, lubra, black velvet, oh. and then in other contexts, squaw, um, and those kinds of things. So we, we see in those names, they mean and they trigger particular things. You know, so we're always positioned and have been throughout this colonial project, which is not done yet, um, as a commodity for sexual availability. And I think in in that day that um, we were at the Desk Gates launch, I spoke about Xavier Herbert. You know, here's a, a person who, who won the Miles Franklin Award. So that's, you know, a, a pretty significant Australian award. And, you know, he came out in 1984, which is not that long ago. That's very much in living memory, um, bragging about being um, considered the biggest gin router. And in oh. his bragging, so this is his own word. So in his bragging, he talks about, yeah, we used to take, you know, um, the gins or lubras on board. These are in the pearling um, boats out there off Broome. He was bragging about how, yeah, sure, we used to bring them on board and, um, you know, have sex with them, rape them, and if they got pregnant, we'd just chuck them overboard. So, you know, he was actually having this big brag. Yeah, yeah, I'm the biggest, you know, we were the biggest gin rooters around. So we have a long history in this country where people who commit those kinds of atrocious crimes against Indigenous women um, are revered, you know? This guy won an award, oh. a significant, the Miles Franklin Award for his work. I mean... This is in this era of, you know, name and shame, but doesn't matter in Australia. Um, you know, colonists can say whatever they want about that kind of stuff and it just gets ticked off as it doesn't count. Um, and that's what I mean when you view Indigenous people as less than human, then those crimes that are perpetrated against them become so much easier to do. And I saw this on Twitter the other day. Um, Claire Coleman, who's a um, fantastic Indigenous author, often gets trolled, one, for being Indigenous <laughs> and vocal. But somebody put up um, a tweet, posted, you know, we should, you know, re reclassify them as fauna, then we can cull them or something along those lines, talking about Indigenous people. 
Oh and so when God. we view people, oh yeah, I kid you not, some of the stuff that you see on social media would make your, your toenails curl. But if we classify Indigenous people or we view Indigenous people as less than human, that is the only way that those same, those sort of crimes that we see on the site that we document could be perpetrated. You couldn't do that to, to a human. So you must consider Indigenous women particularly or Indigenous people overall as less than human. And it was the same for the um, case, which I'm sure you've probably discussed on the show, Mr Ward, um, yes. who had third-degree burns on his body um, left in the back of a vehicle. Now, I often look at that case because I think if you leave a, an animal in a car, yeah, you will be hunted down in this country. Absolutely. You would be the worst kind of criminal. Oh. But a man, a human being... Mm was left to basically cook to death in the back of a van. And I remember watching that film, Utopia. Yep. Um, that, yeah, and in that, the Corrective Services Minister at the time is being interviewed, and she says that, and I can't remember her name, sorry, she says, oh, I made my staff endure cultural awareness training as a punishment to the death of that man. That's right. Yeah. A punishment. A punishment for her, her department was that they had to endure cultural awareness training. So what I think to myself is that you, no matter what, cultural awareness training cannot address that kind of innate racism that would allow you to view someone as less than human. Definitely not. To allow them to die in your care. Like, come on, that has to end. And when we look at some of these cases, and they distress me to think about, where Indigenous girls and women are stripped naked. There was one in Western Australia where, um, just recently, where she was made to give birth alone, naked in a cell. Who was that? Well, this was a, a, a woman. She didn't um, die. Just recently, an Indigenous woman was made to give birth in the cell. Oh, yes, Australia. I think I heard about that. Yeah. Th- that's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. Despicable. And while the police sort of laughed and joked and said things yeah. outside her cell and pre- pretended they couldn't find the keys... Yeah. Now that you look at somebody like that means you're looking at them at less than human because you would afford an animal birthing much more respect oh. than that. Than that. So that that means that they're looking at this person. So they're in charge of that person's care, in state care. In state the care. The violence that gets perpetrated on this woman because she's indigenous. It's disgusting. And look, so and, and Aunty Tanya too. Absolutely. Yeah, Aunty Tanya with the cultural training too, though, to mention yep. that. Yeah. yeah. This happens to be the punishment for, um, you know, the settlers when they can perpetrate crimes and get found out, go through a system that's rigged to support them, um, and they get to have to do cultural awareness training. <laughs> so you can tell me, more you know about a culture, like you know the colours of the flag meme, or you know you know national holidays like NADOC, is going to stop you viewing a population of people as less than human if you could sit by and watch that. Absolutely. And while you've been talking, Roman, I just wanted to perhaps also mention Lynette Daly and what happened to yes. her on the beach, the 33-year-old mother Absolutely. of seven. That, that was terrible. And I remember reading the headlines which said, uh, you know... Um, I can't remember the exact headlines. It was something like "Wild Night of Sex." Yeah, yeah. Um, and alcohol. It was That's something right. Like that. Yeah. Not woman violently killed. You know, it's, what? Where's the focus on this? It's it, the focus is on well, she was having lots of sex and, and alcohol and woohoo and bummer ended up dying. Are you kidding? That those would be the headlines. 
Like, it's, it's absolutely atrocious. Even if I was in, working in media and I was writing that headline, I'd be thinking to myself, what am I doing? I'd be fired. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't write it. Oh, wouldn't you? Like, come on, where's your humanity? <laughs> no, I mean, like, I, I wouldn't write that. I wouldn't write that stuff. No, of course not. <laughs> Absolutely not, you wouldn't. And, uh, yeah, where are these people's humanity? I know. That they cannot feel any kind of compassion for a human being that is murdered and died a significant death in that way. Ironically, she died on Invasion Day in 2011. Yeah. And, Absolutely atrocious. And there's awful men. Like, I know I kind of, I'm pretty explicit, you know, the way I'm reading them, but I just want yeah. listeners to know. I want them to know. Oh, totally. You know, her naked and bloodied body was found the following morning, sorry, not not on Invasion Day, on the 10-mile yep. beach near Aluka, New South Wales, and she was raped by these guys. And I believe that the public prosecutions declined to prosecute the men responsible for her death at first. Uh, and, and there was national campaigns, I think, and then they did. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is some of the power of um, social media for Indigenous people. And um, as you know, I've been studying that space for some time. The power of social media is that we get to know about these cases because people are sharing stuff amongst each other. It wasn't that long ago, you know, that we didn't have social media for one, but two, that these kind of stories could be um, left in small towns, left in spaces, unchallenged. Um, but social media now is like those things get posted and Indigenous people en masse react we share stories with each other. We now know what's happening over there in Western Australia or up there in Queensland or wherever the hell we are. Um, we now know what's going on in some of those communities. So some of this, you know, absolute violence and vile um, actions against us, you know, is now becoming known. Yeah, Absolutely. like the, um, when they, you talked about um, genocide before and colonisation and still happening and with the, um, yep. when they, um took um, people to court because they can't um, deport them. It's really ridiculous even going to court. I mean, you know, not they, not people going against it. Yeah. The no, there have been lots people. of, yeah. There's been yeah. several Indigenous people, um, and particularly men in this instance, who have actually been uh, attempted to deport, be deported from Australia. Oh, yes. Um, and yeah, so, yeah. Which I think, you know, and so the, the court has now declared that Indigenous people are not aliens um, and therefore um, can't be deported from this country. But indeed, we are aliens. That was the point of the tent embassy back in the 70s. We yeah. are treated as aliens. I'm glad they can't deport Indigenous people. I mean, the height of it. Um, but we are definitely considered aliens in this country without a doubt. Mm. Absolutely. And then you've got Indigenous women that died um, in the street and on the road. No. As well. In every place that you can imagine. It's interesting. Now, Bronwyn, is this too, are you still happy to go on just for a couple more minutes? You yeah, all right? Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with um, the road, with. Have we, have we mentioned Lois Roberts yet? Uh, no, we haven't. No, Lois Roberts was last um, seen on 31st July 1998 around 5.30 p.m. after missing a bus home and walking down the road to try to hitchhike back, as she had done countless times before. And she was never seen again. You know, and, and you will find that there will be so many cases that could be attributed under that banner of the road of Indigenous people. 
I mean, I remember talking to some people up in the territory, some women there that I had done some work with, and they were talking about the amount of people who were killed on the side of the road walking home. And they were talking about um, not just particularly Indigenous women, but people who were just mowed down by trucks, etc., and just left. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Yeah, that made me feel ill enough as it was. It's... Yeah, atrocious. But yeah, on the road, I mean, we know about in Australia has a, a huge history and we know about the cases that get brought. Um, our attention gets brought to them and they're usually because they're tourists, etc. But hitchhikers, we know that in some Indigenous communities are way out of town. Mm. Um, they're still on the periphery of many places and that Indigenous people often don't have a vehicle, don't have a way home. And so the road is a dangerous place. Yeah. And indeed, poverty and human trafficking go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? We don't know the extent of trafficking here in Australia. And some of the work that I've done on social media, for example, um, I've been asked, have I looked at trafficking um, using various apps on social media? And I said, no, I haven't looked at looked at that. And people have told me that, yeah, those apps, particularly dating apps, etc., hookup apps, um, have been used to track young Indigenous people, have been used to traffic um, young kids. So if you think about dating apps, right, um, for Tinder, for example, I'll just use this as an example, yeah. and I'm not suggesting mm. everything no, no. happening on Tinder, but you just need to have a Facebook um, profile to set up a profile on those dating apps. So we know kids have got Facebook profiles and they all say they're 13, but they're not. Um, so young people are using those apps and can and can then communicate via Tinder, Grinder, and other apps. Um, and they don't even have to be very young. I mean, people are just using those apps. And one of the papers I wrote just recently for the Journal of Sociology, I looked at the high rates of racism and violence via those apps on Indigenous people seeking, looking for love, hookups, etc. And some of the stories that people have told me about their experiences um, of these hookups is horrifying. Um, so we don't know. There's no research that looks at what's the connection between hookup apps which have GPS functioning. Mm. So I can look at those apps and find out who's in the vicinity to me and track people. We don't know what's the connection between any violence towards Indigenous young people and girls, and particularly in uh, more remote places where truckies have been, it's been suggested to me. Um, one of the people I interviewed said, yeah, truck drivers are using those apps. Um, to connect with and barter for young Indigenous girls. Um, So I don't know much else about it, but people are talking about it. So I want to know more about it because that scares me. That is really scary. And indeed, in Australia, 19% of homicides of Indigenous people occur in public or open spaces as compared with only 7% of homicides involving non-Indigenous people. And I'm not quite, quite sure how to pronounce this name. I think it's Clementiae Green. Um, she was a 25-year-old a twenty-five-year-old woman who was found dead in a vacant lot in Tennant Creek in northern Australia mm-hmm. with her partner lying next to her. And again, again, you know, the police failed to secure the scene. They destroyed yep. crucial forensic evidence. They demonstrated lack of urgency, intent and competence during the investigation. And no one's been charged for a death. Yeah. I mean, there was that other case as well of that young woman who called the police um, for fear of her own life and escaping um, her partner. Um, Massive domestic violence, 
the police arrived, were keen to arrest her. I think um, maybe from pay fines, but she was arrested. Her child was taken um, by the actual perp. The person who was inflicting the violence against her was raped and killed. This is the tenth, the tenth month old. The tenth month old was killed. Yeah, her baby was killed because the, when she called the police to say, "I'm, a, you know, a victim of domestic violence, help me," they arrested her for unpaid fines. Oh, great! <laughs> and then the guy who was her partner at the time took her ten-month-old baby. There was no where's the care of that child, and actually raped and killed the child. That is, see, it, it goes on and on, Roman. It goes yeah, it on is, on. You know, it goes, this is where we say that it is the colonial violence that continues because mm. it's at every level at institutions. So Indigenous person, a, a woman seeks help for, it could be for domestic violence or health-related things, um, poverty, whatever, is refused um, that help, which is often, and we see that in so many of these cases, can't get help, um, are often injured, and then they're taken into custody for unpaid fines and the like. Um, they fail to get the health care whilst they're in custody. We saw that with Ms. Du um, and other cases where they've actually died as a result of the injuries sustained um, when they've called the police for help. And so what do we? What happens then if you're an Indigenous person and you know you can't seek help? What kind exactly. of world does that look like? Well... That is scary. That's we, a scary world to look at. We need to change it and... Basically, it's about institutional and structural racism and gaps in law enforcement response and prosecution. Absolutely. In Australia, we just have to, like, you know, just stop this nonsense. Australia is built on a racist foundation, starting with the lie of Terranalias, starting with all the lies that followed. It starts with the idea that Captain Cook was any, anything significant in this country. Why are we spending all this money on a statue of him? It starts with yeah. ignoring all the accomplishments of Indigenous people. So Indigenous people are then viewed as something different than they are today. It starts with all of this truth-telling. It starts with looking at our institutions and how they were literally set up as a way to control or rid the country of Indigenous people. The education system, for a start. You know, we've got the Parramatta Girl, um, Native Institution out there, Parramatta. These places were set up to remove children to actually breed out or to um, eradicate any any sense of being an Indigenous person. All of our institutions are built on this notion. Our legal system is so flawed, it's built on that not, that lie um, of Terranalius to begin with. Even when that's overturned, the lie perpetuates in other laws. We In this country, people are still shocked to hear that the Northern Territory intervention continues. We uh, live in a country where there's intervention into people's lives and liberties um, is still going on. Um, that's absolutely outrageous where we create laws to target Indigenous people so we can incarcerate them. And in that, that film, Utopia, that corrective service minister referred to it like this. She said, yeah, we rack and stack them in Western Australia. We're building prisons to rack and stack Indigenous people. Those were her exact words. That's fine. Oh, Bronwyn, we have, look, we've got so much, there's so much work to do and that you can never have a conclusion with all this, really. it's not going to be because no. you know in Australia we every time that you know any anything comes to the fore like this, everyone's like, well, we're not racist. They're so busy and so concerned with being thought of as racist, they don't stop to actually reflect on their system or reflect on their own behaviour and reflect on their own privilege. Um, you know, so that's why truth telling is absolutely paramount to moving forward in Australia and releasing non-Indigenous people from their 
bubble existence, that they live in a world where this is okay. Because what they should be thinking about is if they can do that to a particular population in this country, and we see the same kind of violence perpetrated on refugee communities, we see how islands are used as death camps and have been for Indigenous people since the beginning of colonialism. Mm. Tasmania was an example, but we've had Palm Island and other places where these islands are used as death camps. We see that now with the refugee community. These are death camps for people. We send them there, and the idea is that they will expire. We need to own that kind of stuff and and think about, like, what kind of world do you want to live in? You know, do you want to live in a place where that where humanity is missing? Yeah. Indeed. Like, I certainly don't. It's very true, Bronwyn. And, and in fact, at this show that we have today, the Doing Time show, it's um, we've just had subscriber drive and we're encouraging our listeners to subscribe, to subscribe. And I think you and I were talking earlier about how this material isn't really in mainstream media. So if, if 3CR goes down the gurgler, basically no one is going to be hearing this stuff. Yeah, and that is, yeah, that is actually a horrifying thought as well. Mm. It is. It's, it's you know, devastating. It really is because, yeah, it is devastating. Um, you know, where you know, they close down things where truths can be told or that these things can be revealed um, but I know there are good people out there in Australia, yeah. so I'm not suggesting it's all just like no, no. against non-Indigenous and all that. I mean, one of the things that um, Deb Kilroy was, um, with her sisters inside, was doing was raising money um, to pay fines to let Indigenous yes. women out of prison. Yeah. And that, you know, and when I think back on that, when I first heard about that, I also first heard about a non-Indigenous pensioner who paid the fines of an Indigenous woman in prison because he was outraged at that. Yeah, yeah so I see, you know, there are good people and we need to, you know, rally together and, and think about we want a place where humanity comes first and how do you live in a country with the first peoples who have rights? You know, wh- why do we want to live in this country where we still want to... We will kill Indigenous people before we will own up to the truth of the lie. Yeah, I saw that... Um Documentary, um, another country with um, David Goobly, isn't it? Goobly? Yep. Do you know Co- that one? Gullible. Gullible. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they, they, this town was, um, you know, they put that's where the intervention happened, and they yep. put a shop there, and people were waiting for the shop to open. They were getting angry. It's all mixed, mixed um, tribes together, and they yeah. tried. And then the another thing on top of that was uh, trying to make white man law on. No, what make people, um, you know, obey white man law, and that can't happen because it's that's you know people are um, there they follow their own law sort of thing, and it was really um, an eye opener that movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is really true. Like yeah. you know, um, indigenous people um, have been subject to changing laws in the Western system, so laws will change. To entrap Indigenous people, and yeah. we've seen that with the intervention, but we also see that with the forced removal of Aboriginal um, people from um, countries, so absolutely, and, uh, and yeah. trying to remove people from um, you know remote communities, and we saw that in like it's not just remote communities, we saw that in Redfern, removing um, you know Aboriginal people um, from the block. You know, yes. so we see True, that yeah. laws can be made to do that. So when we think about laws, oh, it's following white for the laws. The problem is, is that the yeah. legal system here is ever-changing to suit whoever's in power. 
And it's always about power. So we see, you know, it's in the best interest of mining companies to have land to be able to um, not compensate Indigenous people and to take over lands, etc. So we'll create laws to ensure that Indigenous people then become criminals on that country. You know, and we see that just so constantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we see that when Indigenous people fight back and, you know, um, raise up in the streets and say, this is not good enough, we'll create laws to say that protesting is illegal. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Yeah, it's the stuff. So laws, white man's law or Western law or the law in Australia um, mm. is not conducive to any of its citizens because at any moment in time it can change, but it has primarily targeted Indigenous people. Indeed yeah, it has. True, yeah. And should we, should we actually be following in the footsteps of um, the United States and Canada when it comes to Indigenous femicide, the inquiries? Should Australia be following in those footsteps? Well, I think what we need to do is actually um, create our own footsteps. Yes. Because, you know, our, our circumstances are different and our histories are different. And you know, think about the US, they've been uh, killing Indigenous people over there for over 500 years um, under their system. So these are not good footsteps to follow. That's right. So what we need to do is say, what's going on in Australia? We pride ourselves in this country on, you know, being, you know, having a fair go, helping mate, mateship and caring about people. Pride ourselves on all those things while conveniently being unable to see the violence against Indigenous people. So we need to create our own footsteps that we, that other people will consider following, where that we live in a society that is fair and just for all. And, you know, I don't know what people are so scared of. Um, you know, oh, they're going to take over everything. Well, we understand that, you know, all non-Indigenous people are not going to be rid from the land. But, you know, we have to also understand that you can't take everything, including the lives of Indigenous people, for over 230-odd years and then say, we're all equal, let's get on with it. Absolutely, and that's why I asked that question, because I think that Australia does need to create its its own human rights um, yeah. treaty and, and charter. But anyway, Australia's more backward than America and, and Canada, but that we have to leave that for another show because we've nearly finished. But any final well, comments? I think you're fairly backward too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, any final comments, Bronwyn? Look, I would just like to point back to the site, to the deskapes.org site, and to encourage people to look at the case studies in the femicide section particularly, but to look at it all. So if you go through the site, you know, it's a beautiful site. It's so much work has been done on there. Um, so we have to really acknowledge Joseph and, and, and Suverini on doing yeah. those, um, doing that site up. There's a place in... In, uh, once you log on and you start looking through those case studies and you feel overwhelmed, which you probably will, you can actually move into a virtual um, place, um, a garden, where you can um, take some time out and reflect. And because there's so much horror on those sites mm. um, and they're needed, we need to hear these stories. But I also urge people who go on there to look at it to think about the connections that you're seeing. Because as you read through, the things that you will see is domestic violence and help seeking, are, they're connected. People aren't, you know, getting help. That derogatory comments and stereotypes about Indigenous people are current right throughout the responses from, you know, um, the police, the courts, um, etc. So you can, you can map out, you can see it. You'd have to be blind not to see it. So I really would urge people to go look at the site, 
go in there with an open heart and think about it. And then at the end of it, think, is that the world you want to live in? Ask yourself that. That's a good note to end on. That's www.deathscapes.org. Yes. Bronwyn, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's been really great talking to you. Look, thank you for bringing this out into the public. That's fantastic. We need more people to do that. And so I applaud you for doing that. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I think it's a fantastic project and I hope um, lots of people get behind it and um, listen to the show as well. I hope so, and I hope we can we can have you and, and others um, on for future updates about Indigenous femicide and indeed all deaths in custody. Mm. Absolutely, I would love that. Take care. Thanks so much. Yeah, you too. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Professor Bronwyn Carlson uh, speaking about Indigenous femicide and looking at the Deathscapes um the Deathscapes website and the symposium that actually took place that the Do and Time show recorded that took place in Sydney. Oh, it's yeah. approximately four fifty six. We've got about a minute left. Um, subscriber drive is really important. Please subscribe to Three um, CR. All shows at Three CR and the Do and Time show as well. Um, you can drop into the station um, and pay your subscription, or you can go online. And you've got solidarity, waged and unwaged. And have a look on the website for that information, www.3cr.org.au. Just to acknowledge also that um, while we're doing the roll call of people that have died, that on the 14th of February it was the anniversary of TJ Hickey's death. Mm. And we're hoping to, to bring you some coverage um, about that. So we're going to be going out with our theme song pretty soon from Blackfella, Whitefella from the Rumpy Band. Apologies, I'm sorry, Peter, didn't right. play the music. No, and apologies to listeners that we didn't have a lot of music. And we will be bringing you um, more music um, next week. And, um, yeah, so we're going to be going out now with Blackfella, Whitefella from the Rumpy Band. And stay tuned for the Doing Time Show every Monday from 4 to 5 um, for the Doing Time Show. And Beyond Zero up next. Thanks a lot. Take care of each other. True.